Amen. Thank you, sir. If you have your Bible, you can open it to John chapter 15. Uh, we're going to spend a little bit of time tonight, really, in the, in the entire chapter. Um, I wrestled a little bit with, with this chapter. Did I want to just share a portion of it or, you know, a, 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 the, the bottom half or the top half? And I, I kind of wrestled through um, studying the, the text. And I'm going to be honest, I just I couldn't find a good breaking point to not kind of walk through the entire chapter. And so um, it's, it's a lot of content tonight. Um, and I've got a lot of a lot of random thoughts that are in my brain, uh, but I, I do pray that uh, that God shows us something tonight as we kind of wrestle uh, with John chapter 15. Now, last last week we looked at uh, John chapter 13, and so we're not too far removed. Uh, from that, even though we've done some readings in, in other gospels and we've kind of we've, we've moved forward toward the, the end of the timeline before Jesus um, is about to be crucified. Uh, but as I, as I thought from last week about kind of Jesus' final moments and his time in the upper room with his disciples and washing their feet and uh, you know celebrating the, the Passover supper together and uh, all the intense kind of things that Jesus was sharing, I couldn't get past not spending a little bit more time. Uh, just kind of in this entire conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples. And so in John chapter 15, it's still this, this last night before his arrest, and he's still kind of teaching his followers what's going to happen when he's gone. And, and really what, what came to my mind is Jesus is about to give them in John chapter 15, in my opinion, the, the most clear expectations outside of the Great Commission that he will ever give to his disciples. Now, you may not know this about me, but I'm a guy who likes expectations. You say, you know, Danny, what what do you mean? Well, I think about pretty much anything in my life. If we're going to go on vacation, I don't mind vacation, although I'll be honest, the best vacation for me is just being at my house, but uh, I try to convince Kayla and the kids that we're always together at home so why do we have to go somewhere else to be together? But they don't quite see it that way. But if we're going to go on vacation, I'm fine with that. But I want to know what's expected of me while we're there. Now, you may call that a schedule, or you may call that an itinerary. You may have some different names for that when you're planning things. But for me, as dad and husband and father, I just call those what Kayla expects of me while we're there. And I want to know what she expects of me on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. I don't mind the expectations as long as I know them. Now, even simpler than this, if we just go to Tupelo and get something to eat or go watch a movie with the kids or whatever it is, I don't mind doing it. I just want to know what the expectations are before we get out of the house. Now, here's why. Because Kayla, she's not in here tonight, so this is even more fun. Although tonight's the first night that I'm recording the Wednesday night stuff, and so I guess she'll actually be able to go back and hear this one. But when we go out and, and we're just, hey, we're just going to go eat. You know, we're going to go wherever, get some food with the kids, and then we're going to come back home. It's never that simple. Here's what usually happens. We get out and we're eating, and then Kayla will go, hey, can we stop by Dollar General on the way home? I need to look for something. Hey, I went ahead and did a Walmart pickup because we're out. Can we swing by uh, Walmart and pick this up? Hey, you know, I'm, I, meant to, I meant to get that. We, really, I was going to get my ring cleaned. And I just, since we're going to be there, can we? And I'm just like, <sighs> now, if we would have left the house and the expectation was we're going to go eat, 
we're going to swing by Dollar General, we're going to get the Walmart pickup, and we're going to go home. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't mind that. I know we got to do it. But if it wasn't the expectation, it throws me completely out of whack because I did not sign up for all this. I signed up to eat lunch. That wasn't the expectation. Now, it's this way in my, in my, in my life personally as well. Like when I came here to be the pastor at First Baptist, I wanted to know what are the expectations. As a matter of fact, I'll never forget some of my earliest conversations with, with the search committee, and I pretty much told them, I said, listen, this is what you're getting. And I gave them a short list that was not impressive at all. And I said, if you want something other than that, then we might as well not even continue having a conversation because this is what I got, and I'll give it to you, but if you expect something different, that's not me. Now, do I mind expectations? Not at all. If you tell me up front, this is what you want, this is what you need, this is what's expected, no big deal. But if the expectations are put up on me later, I am not a fan of not knowing the expectations. Now you say, Danny, why are you telling us all that? This is exactly what Jesus does in John chapter 15. He gives his followers clear expectations of what he desires from them moving forward, especially knowing that he will be gone. So here's what I want to do. I want to show you a couple of those expectations tonight. I want to travel through a little bit of this, of this text because it's, it's pretty lengthy. And I want you to see some of the clear things that Jesus doesn't just show them, but he shows us that are expectations not to be Christians, but expectations because we are Christians. If we know them before we sign up, no big deal. This is not surprising expectations. If you didn't know them, it's because you didn't read them. It's not because he didn't tell you them. So none of us have an excuse to be mad at the expectations because he gave them to us in John chapter 15. Here's the first one. Jesus expects us to abide in order to produce. He expects us to abide in order to produce. Here's what he says in John 15 verse 1. This is Jesus talking all throughout this chapter. He says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Now I want to point out a couple of things as we walk through this. Here's the first one. We can't produce if we're not planted, right? This is typical uh, uh, farming, cultivating, I don't know any other words, kind of language, all right? I'm not a farmer, but I can tell you this. I can never expect to produce something if it was never planted in the first place. I'm not a genius, but I know I'm not just going to walk outside and start picking tomatoes off my ground, all right? Without it being planted, nothing will be produced. Now you say, Danny, why are you saying this from John 15, 1? Well, what's interesting is this is the final uh, I am statement of Jesus in the Gospel of John. There are seven of them. They're pretty famous. A lot of people teach the great I am statements of Jesus. This is the final I am statement. 
And here's what Jesus is doing. He's describing the relationship that they have, his followers have, with him and with God through an example that all of them would know extremely well. As a matter of fact, in Isaiah chapter 5, it gives us the example of God's people, the nation of Israel, as a vineyard. In Ezekiel, he describes God's people as a useless vine in chapter number 15. As a matter of fact, listen to these verses. Psalm 80, verse 8. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. Jeremiah 6, 9. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they shall glean thoroughly as a vine the remnant of Israel, like a grape gatherer pass your hand again over its branches. Hosea chapter 10 verse 1, Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built as his country improved, he improved his pillars. All throughout the Old Testament, I just selected a few that I thought were kind of catchy. All throughout the Old Testament, God describes the people of Israel as a vine that would produce the fruits of God for the rest of the nations to see. In other words, he took them out of Egypt, he planted them so that they would produce fruit that the rest of the world would notice so that people would praise and glorify and honor and follow the God that they represented. But here's what we know about the nation of Israel from the Old Testament. They failed. Enter Jesus. Jesus is the true vine. The vine that Israel failed to be. God is the vine dresser. God is the one who attends to the vine. He cultivates and protects it. Now what's interesting to me to note about the discussion that Jesus is having uh, with, with the, the, the nation of Israel about the nation of Israel, not so much, by the way, in this context, he's not talking about the church, though he's going to talk about the church, he's addressing the nation of Israel. Now this is important as you read John 15, because you're going to read some things that make you question why Jesus would say what he said. What does this mean for me? What's he talking about with the church? Why is he making these crazy statements? Well, here's why it's confusing to us. Because it's not about us. It's about the original vine that God planted that failed, that now has some major issues, that Jesus has come as the true vine, and God's going to dress some things up, and he's going to fix some things, and he's going to weed some things, and he's going to tear some things, and he's going to fix some things. And listen to me, friends. He's going to plant some things. You say, Danny, what do you mean by that? Well, the day before this, Jesus, before he makes these statements in John 15, Jesus compares the nation of Israel to the tenants of a vineyard. Matter of fact, you can read this in Matthew chapter 21, but here's what happens in the story. When the owner came to get the fruits from the vineyard, the tenants killed his servants. Again, he sends some more servants, and the same thing happens. The owner kills the servants. Then the, the, the owner of the, the land, he says, you know what? This tenant may have killed my servants, but surely he won't kill my son. And so he sends his son to go and get the harvest, but instead they killed his son. And Jesus used this parable to talk about the sins of the nation of Israel. Here's what he said in Matthew 21, verse 43. Therefore I tell you, 
the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. You say, Danny, what is Jesus talking about? Here's what he's talking about. That old vine, it didn't work. Jesus, the true vine, the one who made it all work, he's come now and he's planting a new vineyard. And guess what he's going to call it? He's going to call it the church. And guess who it's going to include? A lot more than just one nation. And guess who's going to benefit from it? You and me. Listen, you got to abide if you're going to produce. And can I tell you something? You can't produce if you've never been planted. Can I just lay something in the back of your minds, friends? You can't claim to be the church if you're not connected to the vine. You can't claim to know Jesus, to be a part of the kingdom, if you haven't given your life to Christ, if He hasn't planted you. Look at verse 2. I spent way too much time on verse 1. We got like 27 verses to get through, so let's, let's move on. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Now let me show you this next thing. We can't produce if we're not pruned. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I, I don't know a whole lot about gardening. But I will say that this past summer, I got to do a little bit of it myself. I'm going to pick on Bird for a minute because it doesn't matter, so it's fine. But Bird went on vacation, and before he went, he, he said, Danny, would you be willing to walk through the garden and pick the things that are ready, and you can keep them, which, by the way, I did. Or he said you could give them to other people, which I didn't. <laughs> but he let me tend his garden a little bit. Now, when he was training me for this, I don't know if this is right or not in my mind. I'm not a gardener, farmer. I, don't, I didn't know what I was doing. I just did what he showed me. As we're going through it the first time, he's picking things off, and when he sees a branch that isn't producing fruit anymore, he took his knife and he just cut it off. He's like, look, this one ain't doing nothing. I'm just going to cut it off. Because it, it takes away from the rest. I'm going to cut it off. It's going to produce better with that. So cut. we're walking through, and, 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 and he cuts a little bit off. And we get done, and I'm like, I, you know, I really hadn't processed through it very much. But here's what I noticed by the time we, we finished learning this, and then, of course, me going back that next week and, and doing some of it myself, which, by the way, I didn't cut anything off of your garden, bro. I'll let you uh, do that. But I learned a couple of things during this process. The branches that produced nothing needed to be removed so that they didn't take wasted energy away from the plant to produce fruit on the branches that were fruitful. Why waste energy from the plant on branches that will never produce fruit? Now think about that for a moment. It's a little hurtful if you're thinking about yourself as the branch, I guess. Why continue to let a branch grow and consume energy from the plant if all it has is leaves and never any fruit? You wouldn't. What would you do? You'd cut it off. You'd prune that plant. Why? So it can produce more fruit. Now, the branches that produced fruit would have limbs on them, right, over time that were no longer producing. They would need it to be trimmed off so that the rest of the branch could get all of the energy for producing even more fruit. This is the pruning 
process. So you say, Danny, what what do you what do you what do you mean by what is what is Jesus talking about? Well, in this moment, his disciples understand a whole lot more about this than I do, by the way. I've even seen it myself, and I don't even understand half of what I'm telling you right now, okay? They did. This was life for them. They had seen this over and over and over and over. Jesus is comparing his followers to branches on a vine that either produce fruit or they don't. If those following him don't produce fruit, then God will take them away. Why? Because why would he waste energy on branches that will never produce fruit? If a so-called disciple never grows, then maybe we shouldn't waste a lot of God's resources trying to convince someone who never will. That's painful, right? We don't know what God knows, so that's a little tricky. But it seems a little, seems a little strange to continue to spin your wheels on people who don't care while you're not investing in people who do, right? Jesus says, I'm just going, we just, God's just going to remove that and we're going to move forward. If they do produce fruit, he will prune or trim away the excess limbs that are wasting energy so that they can bear more fruit. They have matured to producing greater things. Why go back and waste energy on limbs that are no longer necessary? As we mature as disciples of Jesus, there are things or limbs in our lives that God will remove so that we can produce more fruit for him. Now listen, I really got kind of processing this a little bit. And and I th- this is really seen even throughout the rest of the New Testament and and what's beautiful is that John himself helps paint an even greater picture of this when he receives the revelation of Jesus in the last part of the book, right? And in there Jesus describes a couple of churches. I'm going to name just two of them. The first one is the church of Ephesus, who was in danger of being taken away. They were in danger of God stripping them off and casting them out. Why? Well, listen to this from Revelation chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, listen to this, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. That's not good. Let me mention another church to you from this segment of churches. This is the church of Smyrna, who wasn't in danger of being cast out, but they did need pruning in order to produce more fruit. Now, here's what's terrifying about the church at Smyrna. I don't know if you think about a plant, but when I was watching Bird walk through and just hack those limbs off, here's what I can imagine. It didn't take much for us, but I feel like it really hurt that plant. Can I tell you something? Pruning is certainly not something that always feels good. And in the case of Smyrna, do you know what God used to prune that church? He used persecution. He allowed an evil emperor to reign at a time that pushed that church beyond its limits. Listen to what it says, Revelation chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. 
Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. In one case, this church, its people, had become so calloused and so carnal that he's saying, I will cast you out. Friends, I don't want that to be me. But if we're not careful, it will be. Let me tell you something else, though. Those who are producing fruits, as those fruits mature, if new growth is not happening because the energy from the tree is going to these old branches that no longer matter anymore, he's going to cut them off. And so here's what I know. Sometimes it's a pruning process that must take place. Why? Because it's only through the pruning that we will produce the fruit that God desires for us to produce. Listen, i got to move on. Verse 3, here's what Jesus says. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Let me show you this one. We can't produce if we're not prepared. I love this picture of clean that Jesus talks about. Instantly in my mind, here's all I can think about. All I can think about is John 13 that we talked about last week. Now, if you weren't here, here's what we talked about. Jesus, right, took out a towel, wrapped it around his waist, and he began washing the dirty feet of his followers. And as he got to Peter, Peter looks at Jesus and says, you're not about to wash my feet, right? Like, I'm, you ain't touching my feet, Jesus. I'm out on that. And Jesus looks at him and says, if I don't wash your feet, you don't have any part with me. And then Peter's like, well, if that's the case, you've got to wash more than my feet. You need to wash all of me. And Jesus says, Peter, I don't have to wash all of you because you're already clean. Instead, I just need to wash your feet because after you travel for a little while, after you go through this dirty world for a little while, after you move about in, in this place, even though you are clean, your feet will still get some dirt on it and I will need to wash you from time to time. Jesus is making the same kind of statement. You are already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. This is kind of that planet idea again, right? If we don't abide in Jesus, we will never be cleaned to be prepared in order to produce. Let me keep going. It gets, it gets really good, and I'm spending too much time here. Verse 4, look at this. Abide in me, there's, there's the beautiful word, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Let me show you this one. We can't produce if we're not paired. Now you say, Danny, what do you mean? If we're not paired with Jesus, if we're not connected to Christ, if we don't abide or stay or live or rest or remain in Jesus, we will never produce any fruit. You say, Danny, what do you mean? If we chop a branch off of the vine and throw it to the side, guess what it does? It withers and it dies and it is no more good. Why? Because the life did not come from the branch. The life came from the vine. You say, Daddy, I don't understand why my life isn't looking more like Jesus. I don't understand why my life's not producing fruits for God. I don't understand why I'm not maturing, why I'm not growing. I don't understand, Danny, why I'm not becoming more like Jesus. Well, friends, let me tell you something. If it's because you've removed yourself from the vine, then you have lost all your power and you will never grow. 
So the question I think you got to ask yourself first is, am I abiding so that I can be producing? Because you will never produce if you don't abide in Jesus. If your power is yours, if it's your ability, if it's your energy, if it's your way, if it's your, if it's you, you're in trouble. Because we can't do it apart from Jesus. Now, I love this word abide. The Greek word that Jesus uses here appears 11 times in this chapter alone, 40 times in the entire Gospel of John, and 27 times in his epistles, 1st through 3rd John. The word abide, or a lot of translations may say remain, has been translated in three different ways. Here's the first one. It can mean to accept Jesus as your Savior. We see this in John chapter 6, verse 56. I won't read it, but it has been used to mean that you are now a follower of Christ. Second way is that it can mean to continue or persevere in believing or following Jesus. You can find this in John chapter 8, verse 31, or 1 John 2, 24. Or thirdly, it can mean loving obedience. He'll say this later in verse 10 of John chapter 15. All I can think about as I'm reading about the vine is how nothing in this building would be working right now if it was not connected to a power source. All I could think about was how beautiful these TVs are if they're just sitting here. If they're not plugged in. I mean, they're still nice. They're big. They've got a lot of features, a lot of stuff you can plug into them. They're trying to think of how to describe a TV really cool. But anyway, they're nice, right? But if they're never turned on because they don't have any power, then guess what? They're just huge boxes of plastic that mean nothing to us. They are worthless without power. You see what's happening here? It's not us that's great. Now, I know that stings at times, and maybe you say, Danny, I'm tired of you saying that to me. We can, we can fight about that later. I'm sure you're more awesome than I give you credit for, but here's what I know. We're not that great. We are only great because we're connected to the vine. So what does your connection with Jesus look like? How often do you spend time with him in prayer? How often do you spend time with him in his word? How often do you spend time with him in worship? You say, hey, I want to abide so that I can produce. How do I abide? Well, you know how. I'm preaching to the choir a little bit, right? Wednesday nights are the good people, the ones who know all the answers, the, one who, the ones who want to follow Jesus, right? If that's true then how much are you abiding in Jesus? He is our power source. Without Him, look at verse 5. Without Him, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. That's our story, by the way. With Jesus, fruitful, power, impact, right? Without Jesus, you can do nothing. I love the progression, by the way, that happens from verse 2 to verse 5. Verse 2 starts with us bearing fruit. Verse 2 ends with us bearing more fruit. Verse 5 ends with us bearing much fruit. (laughs) 
the more we're connected, the more we abide, the more we allow His power to run through us, submit to His will, live in His Spirit, abide in Jesus and not ourselves, the more that happens, the more fruit that is produced. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Now there's a lot of interpretation about what Jesus is talking about. Some people think it means that you can lose your salvation, but we know that's not true from the rest of the Bible. Some think that it's a loss of rewards and not a loss of salvation, like 1 Corinthians 3.15 tells us that when we get to heaven, our works are going to be tried by fire, and the ones that were worthless are going to be burned up, and the ones that are good are going to stand the test of the fire, right? Some people think that's what Jesus is talking about. I think the burned branches refers to those who reject Jesus and will spend eternity in hell. Listen to me, friends. We can't produce if we're not paired. Without Jesus, we are nothing. Let me read these verses before we move on. Verse 7, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Let me show you this last one. We can't produce if we're not proven. There is no doubt that our goal as followers of Jesus is to bring glory to God. This happens best when we bear much fruit and prove to be His disciples. Listen, friends, we don't, we don't make the fruit grow. We don't do the cutting off or the pruning. We have one job, and it's to produce fruit, and it only happens as we abide in Jesus. Jesus expects us to abide in order to produce. The production is not yours to worry about. Don't miss that. Don't miss the order. It's not the producing so that you can abide. It's abide so that you can produce. Oh, we got so much. Let me hurry up. Here's the second. Second expectation. Jesus expects us to assist in order to progress. To assist... In order to progress. You say, Danny, what do you mean? Well, look at verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Love is described... Right here in the midst of what Jesus is talking about. This assist in order to progress is talking about our love for one another. Jesus doesn't just expect us to love Him and abide in Him and to grow in Him and to produce fruit as we are abiding in Him. He also expects us to assist in order to progress. In other words, we've got to love people so that not only we can grow in our faith, but so can others grow in their faith. I don't know if you know this, friends, but we need each other. We can't do this life alone. And so Jesus describes, first of all, that everything that happens is is built on not your love for Him, but on His love for you. This love starts with Jesus and ends with joy. The only way we experience full, complete joy is as we live in the love that Jesus provides for us. And so he goes on, verse 12, he says, This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Love's not only described, it's demonstrated. 
right? Like Jesus isn't trying to make you think, man, how can you love people? What's the? He's not asking a discussion question here. He's not getting all the 12 disciples together and going, okay, guys, I got a, I got a thought for us. How can we best love one another? Any ideas out there? I need help. Y'all got any ideas? No, no, no. Jesus is looking at them and saying, hey, because I love you, you now should love others. You say, how? Well, here's how. I laid down my life for my friends. That's the greatest picture of love. And then we've got to sit back and think this. If Jesus would lay it all down for us and He wants us to love as He loved, how can we get away from the fact that we too, we too, should be wrapping the towel around our waist. We too should be washing the feet of other people. We too should be sacrificing our own way for the benefit of others. We too should be looking out for the interests of others and not our own. We too should be loving like Jesus loved. He demonstrated. You say, Danny, how did He demonstrate it? He gave it all. Yeah, but Danny, He gave it all for His friends. Alright, He did. He also gave it all for His enemies. Don't forget, Judas is still in the mix here, right? Don't forget, he's still looking at the one who will betray him, and he's still given that one, by the way, multiple, multiple, multiple opportunities to repent and to turn to him. All right, now I'm not getting in a theological discussion about Jesus being, uh, Judas being planned to do that before time and fulfilling scripture, and somebody had to betray. I don't, I don't care about all that. Jesus gives him chance after chance after chance. You say how? He demonstrates his love by laying it down, not just for his friends, but for his enemies. And then he calls us to do the same thing. Can I ask you something? How often do we put others before ourselves? How often do we think, how can I love first? How often do we think maybe this evening won't be about everything Danny wants to do? Maybe I'll think about how I can love my neighbors. Maybe I'll think about how I can love people like Jesus loved me. He, he doesn't just tell them or give them a thought or ask them for discussion. He demonstrates to them exactly what love looks like. He goes on, verse 14, You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Listen, love is described. It's demonstrated. It's also defined. We are the friends of Jesus. He calls us friends. We certainly don't deserve it, but it's what he calls us. Servants are told what to do, but never really know why to do it. We're not merely servants, but friends, because we not only know what God desires from us, but we also know why He desires it. He lets us in on the plan. God has brought us near through Jesus and revealed to us His plans for the world. Look at verse 16. I love this part. You did not choose me, but I chose you. I don't know, I don't know who needs to let that settle in for just a moment. But I don't know if you know this. You, you didn't choose Jesus. He chose you. I don't know if you know this, but when you knew nothing, He knew you. I don't know if you know this, but when you didn't have any idea what was going on, 
He knew what was going on. I don't know if you know this, but before you were ever even a thought in somebody's mind, He already knew that He died for you so that you could change the world through Him. He chose you. You say, Danny, me? Yes. Listen, I know me. And can I tell you something, friends? I would not have chosen me if I was the best person in the group. But you know what's awesome? Jesus chose me. I always think about this idea of accepting Jesus. It's nothing wrong with the phrase, but isn't it interesting that we talk about accepting him like, like, like he's a used car or the, the only thing that was available that our parents could get us or the last you know, available scholarship, you know, or the man, you were, well, I guess we'll accept you on our team. You're the last pick. We got it. We got to accept you, right? No, friends, listen, we, we didn't accept Jesus. He chose us. He says, But I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whether, whatever you ask the Father in my name, He may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Man, love is duplicated. Why was he teaching them these things? Why was he demonstrating this? Why was he describing and defining? Why was he trying to show them such a clear picture of love? Because he wanted them to go do the same thing. He wanted them to duplicate what had been shown to them from the beginning. Let me show you this last expectation. We'll go, we'll go fast. This one's, this one's nothing. Jesus expects us to accept in order to proclaim. You said, Danny, Danny, you just said that we don't accept Jesus. I'm not talking about Jesus. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Here's what I'm talking about. Listen to this, verse, 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, oh, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Here's what he's telling us to accept in order to proclaim. we we got to recognize the world. Like, we live in a dangerous place that is contrary to Jesus. We are not the friends of this world. Because we are friends of Jesus, we are enemies to this place. So guess what that means? They will hate you because they hated Jesus. You say, Danny, I don't understand why I'm not the most popular person in the room. I don't understand why I don't get the greatest promotions. I don't understand why everything's not great. Danny, I gave my life to Jesus. I, I did everything I was supposed to do. I followed everything He said. I read the Bible and I live it and I treat people good, but they still hate me, Danny. Why? <laughs> because if you've ever bought into the lie that following Jesus meant that everything in this world was going to go your way and that everything was going to be happy and everything was going to be great and everything was going... <laughs> Can I just tell you something? You, you, did, you didn't read the expectations. Because that's not what Jesus said. Hey, you know what? We're going to have to accept hatred from the world. Why? So that we can proclaim Jesus to even our enemies. Recognize the world. Watch this. We're finishing. I promise. Verse 21. We're getting so close. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. 
If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them, or yeah, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. Can I just, just look at we, we gotta realize the weakness of the world around us. You say, Danny, what do you mean? Recognize that the world's going to hate you. You follow Jesus. That is its enemy. Satan wants you to stop. The world will try to end it. You also got to realize this. Their weakness is that they don't know what we know. They clearly haven't experienced what we've experienced. They're clearly still darkened by the God of this world and they are missing the light of Jesus Christ. Listen, they are lost in darkness because they don't know Jesus. Can I tell you something, friends? Don't don't look at the world. Don't look at the world and hate those people. Look at the world with the most compassion you possibly can. Why? Because their weakness is they don't know Jesus. You say, but Danny, they do bad things and they say ugly words and they drink and smoke stuff and they let their dog poop in my yard. Whatever the case may be. (laughs) Danny, I just can't like them. Well, friends, all I can tell you is this. You clearly don't remember what it was like to not know Jesus. Because if you could remember that day, you would have extreme compassion on the people who haven't found Him yet. And here's what you would realize. Their weakness is that they don't know what you know. And they are only doing and living and acting and saying and being lost in darkness. And can I tell you something? The drowning person is always going to try to grab somebody else to pull down with them. Can I tell you something, friends? You're not another person to drag down with them. You're a life preserver to save them from the darkness through Jesus. Man, what if you loved them well? Let me show this last one. This is it. Look at these verses 26 and 27. We're done with John 15. Look at this. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, when the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about me. I love this. Don't miss this. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Jesus expects us to accept in order to proclaim. He wants us to reveal the witness of Jesus to the world. Why? Because the Spirit who bears witness is in you who causes you to bear witness of who Jesus is. So what? Big picture. Jesus gives us three clear expectations as His followers. Listen, I had a whole lot of cute little words in there. I hope you caught them because I worked really hard to make them all look pretty. But can I just make it real simple? Abide in Him. Can I tell you something, friends? To know Him is to love Him is to obey Him. That's what Jesus is telling us in John 15. Listen, if you just get to know me, you will fall in love with me. And when you love me, you will obey me. Hey, if you're missing something there, 
then can I tell you something? You are not abiding in Him. Secondly, He expects us to love each other as He loved us. He demonstrated it, described it, defined it. Love is obvious if we read the Scriptures and see who Jesus was. That should be our natural response to one another. Golly, who are you bringing around you that you love so that they can become more like Jesus? Lastly, He expects us to be His witnesses to the world. Yeah, we're going to have to accept some junk. <laughs> We're, we're going to have to be... I, one, of my, one of my favorite writers made this statement, and I love it. He said, if, if you want to reach people for Jesus, you're going to have to sit in the smoking section. I always thought that was funny because I, I don't know about you, but I don't really care about smoking. I mean, I don't like it. It kind of gives me a headache, but I don't care about it. I don't think you're a bad person because you like to smoke a cigarette. I, I don't care. But here's what I do know. The idea is, if you want to reach the people that are in darkness... Not necessarily that smoking a cigarette means you're in darkness. But if you want to reach the people who are in darkness, guess what, friends? You got to go to the darkness. <laughs> I know that's scary. I know for us good Baptists, maybe we've been told our whole life to run as far away from it as we can. Hey, listen. Can I tell you something? When you abide in Jesus, you never have to worry about being in darkness. Why? Because the light of the world lives in you. I wasn't planning on this, but I want to close with it. One of my favorite stories is from a book by a guy named Erwin McManus. Now listen, don't look Erwin up because I think he made some interesting life choices later in ministry, so don't hold that against me. You can hold it against him. I don't care, but don't hold it against me. But Erwin wrote a book. I read it when I was in college. I don't know how old it is now, but it's called The, the Barbarian Way. And the book was describing how domesticated we have made Christianity when Jesus was busting through walls, right? Now we've kind of, well, if we you know, sit here and do this and give that, you know, okay, yeah, we've, we've made it. No, Jesus was running through the darkness, right? Anyway, he wrote a book and he talked about different animal groupings. Now, I don't know how much you know about animal groupings, but some of them are really fun. Like, um, what, what's a, a group of ants? What do we call that? Colony, yeah, I knew you would know that. I, um, what's a lions? Group of lions, pride, right? They're fun. Anybody know the group of tigers? I do because I'm a tiger fan. But an ambush—that's a little scary, isn't it? There's not a group of tigers out there. There's only an ambush of tigers. Anyway, so interesting thought. Anybody know what a group of buzzards are called? Come on, you know this one. A committee of buzzards. Just an interesting one. But my favorite one that he talks about in the book are rhinos. Anybody know what rhinos are called when they're in a group? Somebody knows. Come on. They're called a crash. Now think about that for a second. You picture a rhino. A group of them is called a crash of rhinos. Now, you're just thinking they're large. Me too, right? But here's what's interesting about rhinos. Listen, this is beautiful. Rhinos can run over 31 miles per hour. Now listen, I know we drive cars and maybe you're like, I got to find somebody who's going 31 miles an hour and I wanted to, you know. But you ain't going 31 miles an hour on foot, all right? I got, rhinos can run that fast. You know what else is interesting about rhinos? Which, by the way, is faster than a squirrel. Squirrel running, probably don't care about, but a rhino at 31 miles an hour, you're getting out of the way, right? <laughs> What's also interesting about rhinos is they can't see 
past 30 feet in front of them. Rhinos are blind. Now they can run extremely fast, but they can't see. So guess what? Rhinos never run. No, that's not true. I made that up. <laughs> Rhinos don't care that they can't see what's 31 feet in front of them. Anybody want to guess why? Because who cares what's in front of a crash of rhinos? You better get out of the way, right? Who cares that this building is here if 30 rhinos are running 32 miles an hour at it? The only ones who care are us who are in this building right now. He said, Eddie, why are you talking about this? Erwin did something great. He compared the church of God to a crash of rhinos. You want to know why? Because oftentimes, we ain't got a clue what's in front of us, right? We can't see what God can see. But just like rhinos, it should never keep us from running full speed ahead. Why? Because it's not what's ahead of us that we should be afraid of. It's what's up there that should be afraid of us. Why? Because the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church of Jesus. Hey, friends, that's us. You say, Danny, these ex expectations are a little extreme. <laughs> no, friends. You know what's extreme? That Jesus would love sinners like you and me. And He would decide to die on a cross and, by the way, send us out as His plan for reaching the world. This is what He expects of us. Will we abide? Will we love? Will we be His witnesses? Will we be the crash that He has always created His church to be?